if you are able, I would encourage you to rise as we read, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. It is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and the thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of your hands. You will give them dullness of heart. You will, your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. The grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but your word stands firm and true. Lord, I pray that you would now uphold that promise, that your word would be firm and true in our lives, that you would take the words of this, your servant, and carry them to these people by the power of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray now that through your power and in your indwelling, you would mold and shape lives. Draw near to us this moment. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> fair. <laughs> What's fair? From the very earliest of ages, we have an understanding of fairness, don't we? He got more ice cream than I did. That's not fair. She got to stay up later than I did. That's not fair. We know these conversations, don't we? But then, whether you're a parent or a child, we also know what comes next after those things, right? What happens after, well, he got more ice cream. What does the mom or dad say? Well, life's not always fair, right? We have an understanding of what fairness is or what we want fair to be. But I wonder what it is about fairness that is a part of us. In an April edition of 2008 uh, journal Psycho Psychological Science, it says these words, The brain finds self-serving behavior emotionally unpleasant. 
But a different bundle of neurons also finds genuine fairness uplifting. What's more, these emotional firings occur in brain structures that are fast and automatic. So it appears that the emotional brain is overruling the more deliberate and rational mind faced with conflict. The brain's default position is to demand a fair deal. We want what's fair, don't we? That's only fair to want what's fair. But something interesting happens when we're small children, right? The first time that you say that's not fair, the first thing to respond, as I've already said, is, well, life's not fair. Unfortunately, for many of us in this room, that statement didn't only happen when we were small children, did it? For some of us, we're experiencing that here and now, even today. It seems as if things just aren't fair. Our lives haven't turned out fair. Things have happened in our life that that's not the way I hoped it to be, and that's just not fair. Inevitably, things happen in our life that sometimes makes it feel like life just isn't fair. At the same time, we hold to the reality of something, don't we? We hold to the reality that, that God is a sovereign ruler over all things. That if God is sovereign and, and my life isn't fair, well, maybe perhaps God's not fair. Or He doesn't deal with me in fairness. That if the sovereign ruler of the universe is just that, and my life is broken and hurting and unfair, what does that mean for me? And for many of us, there's a little bit of like a rock, I mean a hammer and a chisel, chiseling out rock at our faith. Or the more we experience that, our faith erodes and is chipped away just a bit by bit. And the more this happens to us, the more our faith erodes more and more. But yet in the Bible, however, we read that God's ways are not our ways. And He does not always act according to what we would want or desire or think we need. So we just say, well, God acts in different ways. And that in itself sometimes doesn't seem fair. So what do we do? What do we do with these situations? What do we do with our hearts? What do we do with our emotions? What do we do with all of this when life just isn't fair and we think that God's not fair and, and everything about life sometimes just isn't fair? Where do we turn? We shift our understanding, don't we? We must shift our understanding of fair to, to His understanding of fair. So that means we have to perhaps, yes, even change our position. To change what it is that we think about fairness. And so here in Lamentations chapter 3, the author is looking around his city. And if you remember, and there's no proof really that Jeremiah is the author, but most folks say that he probably is. But Jeremiah prophesied for decades to this city. That if you don't change, if you don't run away from your idolatry, from your immorality, from your sexual immorality, things are going to come your way. And so here, they did not run, they did not flee their idolatry, their immorality, and Jeremiah stands over a city, and he cries, and he weeps, 
for the transgression and the rebellion. You see, Jerusalem has been fairly judged. Because they rebelled. They have been sacked fairly, for they did seek after other gods. They did pursue immorality in the name of worship. They dealt harshly with their neighbors. And yet here they are, in ruin and rubble. Is that If we're really honest with ourselves, right, this morning, we're really honest with ourselves and the situation that we find ourselves in our lives, do we want what's fair? Do we really want fair? If we would like to be really honest with the situation the Lord spared some of the people in Jerusalem, He did spare some when He did not have to. He didn't need to spare any of them. For as we're told later in the Scriptures, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So what's fair is that the Lord would rightly and fairly condemn us, each and every one of us. And here we find Jeremiah lamenting. Lamenting over their outcome. But something about the lament in chapter 3 strikes me. Jeremiah recognizes something in the middle of of this personal lament. For this is what chapter 3 is. Do you remember? The first couple chapters and the next couple chapters are a corporate lament. He's he's talking about the body of Christ. But here in chapter 3, he turns it in on himself. He says this is his personal lament, his personal confession, that although he is innocent of the crimes, he did not run after idols. He was not a sexual immorality person of guilt. But he turns his gaze. He turns his gaze to the Lord. And he turns his gaze to the whole of the city. He cries out personally for the guilt of the whole. His own guilt, his own lament is personal, and yet it's for the whole body. He says this city weeps even though I am not guilty. I weep for this city. I weep for their guilt, for that guilt is now my guilt for I am the same situation. If we were to look at verses 40 to 42, we see this, don't we? I would encourage you to go there just now to, to take a peek at that, whether you're in your phone or your Bible. Do you see what he says in verse 40 to 42? He says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Although he is innocent of these accusations, it's the community that hurts, and he is a part of it. It's this understanding that Jeremiah now brings to the Lord. He says, we must shift our thoughts. Our understanding of fair, we must understand What is it that Jeremiah understands about fairness? What is it that he understands about what God is and who God is? He understands again the goodness of the Lord. That in the middle of the mess, the Lord remains steadfast and good, as we saw last week. And this doesn't waver. His steadfast love is new every day. His mercies are new every morning. The goodness of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And again, we touched on those wonderful verses a bit last week. The love and the mercy and the goodness of the Lord is made manifest in verse 57. 
Turn your eyes there. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. The goodness of the Lord is in, his, <clears throat> excuse me, in a very intimate and personal way. Jeremiah called, and the Lord listened, and the Lord took action. There's something wonderful about being a small child, isn't there? There's something wonderful about having small children. The wonder of it is their energy, their little smiles, their giggles, how they walk, how they talk, how they make up new words, words that we can't quite understand, so mom and dad have to translate them for us. We know these joys, right? We know these wonderful things. But there's also struggles of being a small child. There's hurts. When they fall off their bike, the tiniest of scratches are the worst of days. They're pretty sure they're going to die. When there's no more cookies in the cookie jar, it's a bad day. There are hurts and there are pains and there are sorrows. There's something else that's striking about small children. They tend to fear. Their fear seems to me a bit more acute. Think back to when you were small or when your children were small in the middle of the night. You're sleeping and then there's this voice, Mommy, Daddy, come in my room. I'm afraid. Do you remember? Tell me what parent will not rise from their slumber as fast as they can and run quickly to the bedside of their child. And what do we say to that small child? It's okay. Do not fear. It's all right. Everything's going to be okay. Daddy's here. I'm by your side. There's no need to fear. Do not be afraid. This then is what Jeremiah understands about the Lord. This then is what Jeremiah understands about fear. His understanding of the Lord is the nearness of the Lord. The nearness of the Lord's goodness. He says, I called to you, verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea from the, from the darkness of the room, from the darkness of our fear, from the darkness of our, of our sorrows and our hurts and our pains, just as that child in the darkness of the room cries out, Mommy and Daddy, so too Jeremiah cries out, Father! <clears throat> and he says, you did not close your ear. You came near when I called on you. And you said the same words that our dad or mom said to us. It's okay. Do not fear. So this then is where Jeremiah draws his understanding of who the Lord is. In the middle of a city that's broken in rubble, in ruin, starving, murdering one another. He calls to the Lord, and the Lord draws near. But there are a couple of questions that rise from here, though, I think, for me anyway, as I read this text. The first question is, what does this kind of nearness, this goodness, this goodness of this nearness look like? And the second question then is an obvious one for all of us here this morning. What, what does that have to do with my life today? As I walk out of here this afternoon, what, what, what difference does that make for me? To answer the first question, we must dive into these verses. We must dive in a little bit and then we'll see how the second question is answered near the end. 
But I want to also tell you, too, that there's a lot of verses here, and there are probably 33 sermons that can be preached out of these 33 verses. And we're not going to do that. I will spare you 33 sermons on Lamentations 3. So I'm going to skim over some things and land on some and not land on others and just be aware that that's what I'm doing. But in order to answer the first question, what does this goodness look like? To me, it looks like first a relationship, and we see that from verses 40 to 42. And the second thing it looks like is redemption in verses 55 to 66. So let's look at this relationship that the Lord has with us. The goodness of the Lord looks like an intimate relationship, not just kind of a bro hug type of relationship, but an actual, real life, intimate relationship. We've touched on a little bit of this already, but this is such a crucial element to Lamentations 3 and this particular section of God's Word that we can't overlook the power of what this is for our lives. We touched on this relationship as it pertains to a father or a mother going to the bedside of a small child. But if you allow me to take the very same illustration just perhaps a little bit further and bring that into verses 40 and 42. At first glance, this may strike you as odd, but let me assure you that this illustration isn't odd when it comes to these few verses. Think back now to a time of your small children was confronted with something that caused an admission of guilt. They've been caught red-handed and whatever that is. Maybe it's something as simple as taking the snacks out of the pantry when they weren't supposed to. Or maybe something far more egregious. But there's a time and a place where in that relationship between a parent and child when we have to confront the thing that was done incorrectly. Certainly there's a moment of tension, isn't there? When the parent confronts the child, did you take the cookie? Usually the child first says, no, it was my brother or my sister or the dog. Something, right? Same response as Adam and Eve gave to God. That's often what happens. But there's also this initial impact of, hey, there's something that went wrong here and there's something that must be done in order for this to be okay. But after the initial impact of the error has left, there is, I hope and I pray for most good and healthy relationships, a sweet moment when the bond is strengthened, isn't there? When the understanding that this person, this child is caught stealing the cookies and they feel very terrible. And they end up confessing that, yes, it was me. And indeed, they did what they were not supposed to do. Usually what happens in the small child is they cry. And they sob. And they say, I didn't mean to do it. I was just hungry. They were there. These kind of things, right? They, they understand that this is a bad thing and there's sorrow and there's remorse. And then there's an apology. I'm sorry. And then quickly the tears come. And the apology comes. And then often something deeply intimate happens the child goes to the parent and buries her head in the chest of the embrace of the dad or the mom. Right? There's something that happens, I trust, not only in parenting, but in most relationships. There's an embrace of forgiveness. Right? The child nestles her head into the comfort and the warmth of a forgiving father or mother. The tears are wiped aside 
by the warm thumb or finger of the parent. The deep breaths of crying are are met with soothing breaths of relief. Do you remember those moments? For it's often in these moments when the relationship is forged forever. The relationship becomes something more right in that moment. It becomes more in-depth. It becomes more intimate. It becomes more special. It becomes closer and tighter. Whatever words you want to use. Forged. Welded. Bonded. So among the shame, among the guilt, among the sorrow, in the middle of all of these things, there's also grace and mercy and love happening at the very same time. This is the beauty of true repentance and true forgiveness. This is the picture that Jeremiah is trying to paint for the picture of Jerusalem. It's not only his sin and rebellion, but he's pleading on the behalf of the entire city that they come to the Lord in repentance in order that they would know and receive this kind of grace, this kind of mercy, which is indeed new every morning. For when we confess to our God, we forge a deeper relationship with Him. Much to the same degree as that small child to the parent. So this is a big reason why we have this in our worship service every Sunday too, right? As individuals and as a body. We don't just go through the motions when we confess our sins. It's not just something that we do because we think it's good liturgy. It's not something that we do just because it's another thing that people in the PCA do or Reformed do or Presbyterians do. But we do it because this is the structure. This is how the relationship works. We know this when parents and children. And so God, as our Father, beckons us to Himself to confess. Not so that we can tell them that we're guilty all necessarily, but that our relationship would be bonded and it would be intimate and, and secure. And so that no matter how heinous and awful was the sin of Israel's idolatry, Jeremiah is pleading with them, come back to the Lord, confess, call out His name. Call His name from the depths of the pit. He will hear you. He will call. He will draw near to your side. He will say, do not fear. Because the grace and the mercy of the Lord is far greater than the sin. It's also interesting that Jeremiah recognizes that there's this corporate aspect, right, of sin. and The the corporate relationship between God and His people We've been caught up far too long, I think, in our circles, in our context, in the idea that it's just me and my Jesus. That this thing called faith, this thing called being a Christian, is just me and Jesus in my devotional time. That's just me and Jesus in my quiet time. It's just me and Jesus even on a worship on Sunday morning. This is not the sense that we get from Lamentations. This is not the sense that we get from the entirety of the Bible. Yes, there is a very deep personal relationship within the Christian walk in life, but it's so much bigger than that. Here, the author of Lamentations is is crying out for the entirety of the city. Let us test. Let us examine. Let us admit and confess that we have transgressed and rebelled against our God. He is pleading with everyone to examine their ways For the judgment of the Lord has come down on the whole of the city. 
So is the whole of the city that must then confess. It's very real then that from the Word of the Lord from this pulpit and in this church that I beckon you to the same thing. We can't escape this call. It's a very real thing then for me to say to all of us as a corporate body and as individuals, let us examine our hearts. Let us test our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. Have we, as this congregation, this denomination, this country, transgressed and rebelled, you might ask? It's a good question. What are our idols? What is our immorality? I can't answer for each and every one of you. But as I gaze over this city, over this country and of this world, there are idols of comfort. There are idols of this is the way things always have been, so this is the way they're always going to be and should be. There are idols of power. I'm in power. I'm going to stay in power. I'm going to do everything I can to be in power. There are idols of longing for power. Somehow if I had the power, then everything would be good. There are idols of wealth. If I only had a little bit more, then, then I would be able to give. I would be able to serve. I'd be able to really worship because I wouldn't have to worry about money. Where are our idols? How have we transgressed? May we test ourselves and see where we have not fought justice like the author demands in verses 34 and 36. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Where and how have the innocent been crushed under the brutal authority in our country, our state, our world? Let us test and examine our hearts. How have we rebelled against the Lord's goodness to the oppressed, to the poor? You see, this is not just a call on Jerusalem. This is a call on Arlington, Texas on the United States, on the world. Let us examine, let us test. Not in order that we would be made to feel shame and guilt. It's not the intent here. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you. But honestly, to look at our own lives and see where and how we have failed our neighbors. How have we not loved them as we have been loved first? To test and examine in order that we would understand the depths of our own brokenness is not that you would somehow be able to beat yourself or flog yourself with guilt and shame, but in order that we would understand the goodness and the love and the steadfast mercy of our God that's new every morning. To understand the intimate depths of how much the Lord loves us. To understand our depths, 
our brokenness, our hurts, our pains, is to understand how high and how wide and how long and how strong is the love and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that about ourselves, we can't understand that about God. And this is what Jeremiah is trying to say. Let us examine ourselves so that we would see the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases even given these things. So again, this is not an exercise of guilt, but an exercise of using a tangible way of relating to God, of how God relates to us in His mercy and in His goodness. He will go this far for you because you've gone that far away from Him. This is what Jeremiah is pleading with the city of Jerusalem See the Lord. See His goodness. The Lord wants us to bury our head in the chest of the Lord. To have Him wrap us with His pinions, as the psalmist says. To show us His goodness and His love and His care in order that we would forge a deeper relationship with our Savior and with others in order that we would know the goodness of the Lord in this intimate kind of way. In Hebrews 5.8, it says to us that Jesus learned obedience through things suffered. Clearly, Jesus was not a sinful man or suffer under sin, but He did suffer its effects. And He did learn. He learned intimacy through His suffering. He learned intimacy with His Father through his suffering. He pleaded and yearned for the Lord and His relationships as He suffered hunger and want. As He suffered weariness, pain, and sorrow. As He saw His friends die. It's through these things that the Lord draws near to us in a closer and closer way. <clears throat> the goodness of the Lord also, as much as it looks like a relationship, it also looks like Redemption. If you look again with me at verse 55, the author of Lamentations is calling out to the Lord in the middle of intense pain. Verse 59, I called on Your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. He calls from pain and hurt. He cries from the depths of the pit, from the bottom of the earth, and from the caverns of His soul. He longs for the presence of the Lord to be near Him. And the Lord hears His call. The Lord heard the call that the prophet Jeremiah was crying for the first two and a half chapters. And the Lord draws near to him, and he's taken up his cause. This is what he says in verse 58, and this is where I want to land on this morning for the remainder of our time to not only answer this first question, but the second questions. I love this phrase, taken up my cause. What does it mean to take up someone's cause? We've heard this phrase, right? What does it mean to take up a cause? That really and ultimately means that that cause is given validation. It's given honor. It's given dignity. When someone takes up a cause, they give time, they give money, they give resources to that cause. And these things are born out of a passion. They're born out of something that people feel very strongly about, isn't it? it then allows us to have the ability, that cause, if, let's just say this for example, that a wealthy man who has millions of dollars and you have a cause and he takes up your cause and he gives you millions of dollars for this cause. 
you now have the opportunity for this cause to flourish and to succeed and to do well for the things that you are passionate about. It validates your opinions. It validates who you are because someone else is giving to your cause, takes up the cause. What does it actually do? It aligns the two people under one banner, under one cause, under one direction, one vision, if you will. So here in Lamentations 3, the author is saying that the Lord had heard His cry from the pit of despair and taken up His cause. What's the cause of the author? What did the Lord take up? What is the Lord validating in the author? It's the hurt. It's the pain. It's the brokenness. The Lord's taking up the cause of the sorrowing, of the sorrowful, of the hurting. This is not normally the kind of cause that we would want to take up, is it? For causes are usually uplifting and and positive and, and heartwarming kinds of things. Yet here, the city is burning, literally, and it's in ruins and rubbles and people are dying in the street. The author is lamenting his sin and the sin of his people and he is calling to the Lord in confession of his brokenness and his pain and his hurt. And the Lord takes up his cause. His cause is despair. His suffering. His cause is an understanding of who He is upon the testing and the examining of His own heart. The realization of the depths of His brokenness is overwhelming to Him. And He says and it's in that moment He calls out to the Lord and the Lord has heard His call. So the Lord takes on His cause. What does that mean? The Lord takes on the suffering. The Lord takes on the hurt. The Lord takes on the pain. We so desperately want fair, don't we? From the smallest of ages, we want fair. But life isn't fair. Can I say to you this morning, praise God that life isn't fair. Praise God that life isn't fair, for it is not fair that God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, gave His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, to be born of a Virgin Mary, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to be crucified, to die for my brokenness, for the rebellion of Redeemer Arlington, for the transgression of Arlington and the sins of the world. It's not fair. It's not fair to God. It's not fair to Jesus. Praise God, life's not fair. It's not fair that we rebelled against Him. It's not fair that in our rebellion, God in His love draws near to us while we are in the pit of despair. In the middle of our brokenness, it's not fair that He draws near. But yet He does. And if that's true, if it's true that Jesus died and He went into the pit of despair while we were there and He conquered that pit and He was raised again from the dead, if that's true, then something else is also true from Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. As little children, we cry to our Father, hear my call. 
Hear me in the darkness. Hear me in the pain and the sorrow and my fear. And the Lord says He will be near. And He indwells us with His Holy Spirit. So therefore, whatever tomorrow holds, the Lord draws near. And He holds you as sons and daughters who as we've already tested and examined our hearts even this morning, we have transgressed and we have rebelled against Him. And yet He still draws near to those who have rebelled and transgressed against Him. And He calls you sons and daughters and He's adopted you into His family. So then there's no greater nearness than that. There's no greater nearness than the presence of the Holy Spirit alive and active in your life This then is why we hope. This is why we hope in the goodness of the Lord. Because the Lord is not just out there somewhere. But He indwells us and He calls us sons and daughters. It's because of His great love for us that we are not overcome. Because of His great love for us, we have a deep, intimate relationship with Him. Because of His great mercy and steadfast love, we have been redeemed. And because of His steadfast love and mercy, He draws near. And we hope in the goodness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that life's not fair. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give You thanks for who You are and what You've done. Lord, thank You that You draw near to us when You didn't have to. We praise You that You are a God of steadfast love and mercy. And so Lord, as we come to this table now, prepare our hearts to experience this nearness, to experience Your goodness and Your grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.